Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. I am Boris Karpa. Welcome to to New Books and Military History. Today we have with us Lieutenant Colonel David Kelly, and he is with us with his book First First Fights in Fallujah: Marines During Operation Vigilant Resolve in Iraq, April two thousand four. And this is a sort of uh, unique book for our show in terms of. In terms of the fact that the author has, you know, interviewed the Marines as the battle was unfolding, mm-hmm. um, and so we, the, in, it's a st- format which is not usual for our show. And we will, t- we will let Lieutenant uh, t- t- Colonel Kelly himself tell us more about it. We're happy to have you with us on our show today, Colonel. Uh, thank you, Doctor. And, you know, we are creatures of traditions here. I think there's an American musical which is called Fiddler on the Roof. There is a... Uh, and they talk a lot about tradition in that musical, and we are here much like these people in the sleepy town of Anatevka. We have a traditional question, which we always start. Can you tell the audience why you come, came to choose this subject for your book? Sure, certainly. Thank you. Uh in 2004, I was uh, asked to return to active duty in the Marines to uh, serve as a field historian. And I deployed to Iraq in 2004, just as things were unfolding, uh, as the insurgency was really getting going. Uh, and that's not what the Marines planned for. My job was to interview Marines in operations, combat operations, routine operations, uh, and submit those recordings to the history division of the Marine Corps. Uh, when my deployment was done in August of 2004, I came home, turned in my files, I went back to civilian life as a high school teacher, and uh, then began listening to my own interviews and going through my own notes. And over the years, uh, I decided to write down everything that I had recorded and and, and my reactions to things. Uh, so by about 2011, I had uh, a, a, a huge trove of pages of information that I was trying to form into some type of a book. Um, and the, the real motivation for me to, to write this book and the, uh, the previous book that I wrote, Hell in the Streets of Huseba, was to, to tell the stories of the Marines who had talked to me. And I hadn't seen a lot of their uh, interviews in, in any publications. Uh, I did see some interviews with some of these Marines who uh, were interviewed years after the events. Uh, I interview these Marines and sailors within days of the events, days and weeks of the events. Uh, I was at combat outposts. I was at uh, base camps. Um, so I felt my interviews had a more uh, immediacy, and uh, that was my motivation to write the books. So just before we continue, I'd like to drill down a little bit about your role as a field historian. Yes. When the Marine Corps sends the field historians out and they collect these interviews, mm-hmm. are these intended to be studied after the conflict or are they also for some kind of immediate practical lessons which they hope to draw? 
Uh, mostly for after the conflict. Um, yeah, this, this, the program began, from what I understand, it began in, during Vietnam uh, when Marine officers went to Vietnam and, and interviewed Marines over there. And then it was uh, re, reborn during Operation Desert Storm. Uh, and a lot of the Marines who were in that, that uh, conflict, the uh, historians, um, continued to train. And then I joined the unit in the mid-90s. So we, we uh, went on their experience. Mostly it was for uh, future generations, uh, not so much uh, things that would be useful right away, j- just by the nature of recording the things. And, you know, we have different I need to stop saying, you know, we have <laughs> because this is a show about books, because our audience is made up of readers, we often have listeners who are writing their own book or they are considering doing so. And so it's always educational, I think. I always ask, mm. can you tell us about some of the difficulties which you've had to overcome? And I just want to spoil the book a little for our listeners because I think you you are among the people who had some of the you are one of the few authors who were in real danger while working on the book yes <laughs> um, well especially when gathering the information um, yeah, once once I had my materials and I was back home and, and, and I was uh, retired from the reserves and uh, as a teacher I had time in the summer to, to work on some of this uh, it, it was a struggle to try to find a publisher uh, about 12 years ago, I began sending out samples to publishers, uh, publishers that would uh, produce military uh, books of military interest. Um, a lot of rejection letters. Uh, about five years ago, I finally organized some of my material. Uh, altogether, I had over 190 interviews uh, to interview some of that material into smaller books. And I actually published them. If you can use the word publish, uh, I put them up on Apple iBooks. And they were free. Um, and I think when you make something free, people give it that much value. It's it's free. Oh, it can't be any good because it's free. Uh, and then about four years ago, about a year before the pandemic year, uh, I w- was able to uh, get a response from a publisher on the West Coast in California who was interested uh, in, in, in putting the books into print and um, put me in contact with a publisher in the United Kingdom. Uh, who also has offices in Havertown, Pennsylvania, which is about four miles from my home, kind of uh, ironic. Um, and then in that year, the year after the pandemic, that's when things really sped up. I was able to focus one of the small booklets that I had uh, produced uh, on my own. And uh, with working with a publisher, uh, had, a, had a book in print. Uh, that was uh, Hell in the Streets of Huseba. And then shortly after that, when the book was, was uh, published, uh, I sent a proposal to the publisher for the second book, which is First Fights in Fallujah. Uh, it's about 40% bigger than the first book, and it's got a lot more stories of, of Marines. So that was that was my process. It was uh, doing it on my own, um, trying to get it published, uh, getting no, no responses or negative responses. Uh, and then finally, one publisher decided to take a take a look at the book. It's funny to me that uh, of all the difficult things which you've read, uh, you've written in our in your book, 
You're not talking to me about how you were interviewing a marine and the shed which you were interviewing him and you know was under under mortar fire. You're telling me about the difficulties you had finding a publisher. <laughs> it tells me a lot about the publishing industry, really. But well, I'd like to ask a little bit about your process when you were interviewing those marines. Uh huh. Yeah, Yes. Uh, what I would need to do uh, was uh, myself and the other field historian that was with me, a major Piedmont, John Piedmont. Uh, we uh, we first met with the staff of the Marine Expeditionary Force, uh, which was the overall commanders of the of all of the Marines in Iraq at the time, and uh, we had a letter of instruction uh, from our our unit, basically telling everyone this is what these historians are here to do. They're not here to write a history for a unit. Uh, they're not here to do the work of the 1st Marine Division or the 1st Marine Air Wing. They're to interview Marines in the field. And uh, we we found cooperation at, at every level. Uh, we would um, contact subordinate units. The way the organization was set up in Iraq at the time, there was a Marine Expeditionary Force, which had a Marine Division, uh, a Marine Air Wing, and a Marine Combat Service Support element. Uh, and they were spread all over Al Anbar province. So one of my jobs was to contact various units, uh, tell them that I would try to get out there to talk to their Marines. And when I did get out there, um, have Marines ready to meet with me. So I didn't go to a place with a list of names. I didn't come in and say, hey, I'd like to know about this incident that happened on July 5th. Uh, it was more, uh, we're going to be there. Uh, please make people available to us when you're able to. Uh, and even when we would get to a place, sometimes we'd get to a place and uh, the uh, the unit was out on a on a patrol, or they were out on a on a deployment for a week or two, and we couldn't get to specific Marines. But generally, we were able to um, um, meet with a variety of Marines at, at all different levels. And the process of the interview itself, can you tell me a little bit about how you worked to do maybe build a connection with the Marines you were interviewing to help them tell you their stories? Uh, yes. I mean, there, there's always a level of respect as a lieutenant colonel when I'm talking to a, a corporal uh, or uh, or a sergeant, or if I'm talking to a full colonel, there's that military respect. But uh, early on in the interview, I made it clear to the Marines, uh, this is not an investigation. Uh, this is not, uh, nobody's in trouble. Um, this is not an official report. Uh, we just want to find out your experiences over here. And the way I normally would begin it was I'd ask each Marine to give me a short background of how long they were in the Marine Corps, uh, what kind of training they had, uh, did they were they on and any deployments before, uh, were they in Iraq in 2003? Um, and just with a few kind of uh, nods like that, it would usually open them up to start describing um, some amazing events that, that they were involved with. And sometimes they would apologize. They would get to the end of a story and they, they'd say, oh, sir. Uh, something else happened before this. Let me tell you about it. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't keep keep a track of it. And I, I was very, you know, non-judgmental. just great. Just just keep telling me the stories. Um, looking back on it, I probably during the interviews should have asked maybe more questions, but I really wanted them to um, just express themselves and let the story go where it went. Um, so I didn't have a, a list of 20 questions that I did. I had a couple of questions at the beginning that were standard. You know, where are you from? How long have you been a Marine? Why did you join the Marines? Uh, what experiences have you had? And then let them go into some significant things that, that they had been involved with uh, doing that occupation. And one thing which really comes through for me in the book is uh, 
role of the Marine Corps values, the Marine Corps ethos, yes? Yes. Mm-hmm. And how it really, the, the word which the Marine Corps likes to use is motivation. How mm-hmm. it motivated all of these people to do their best under not just combat conditions, but really, you know, some of the hardest combat which the Marines have seen in quite some time. Yes. And can you tell us a little bit about the Marine Corps value system and the way it, you know, came through for these interviewees? Well, the the thing that's unique about the U.S. Marines in the United States is every Marine goes through the recruit training at either California, at San Diego, or South Carolina, uh, Paris Island. Uh, then when they go through their training there, their basic training, every Marine goes through infantry training for the length of it varies, but it usually it's about three to four weeks. Then when they're done that, then they go to their uh, specialty training. So if somebody joined the Marine Corps to be a helicopter mechanic, they're not going to get there for several months. They're going to go through recruit training and, and, and learn how to work as a team, um, learn leadership skills, and then they're going to go to their infantry training. And then they're going to go to, if it's a helicopter mechanic, it might be 50 weeks of training. Uh, if it's a weapon specialist, it might be a couple of months of training. So they they, they share that common bond. Um, uh, and many of the Marines, when I when I talked to them, s- said to me, uh, when they were in different situations, they said, this is why I joined the Marine Corps. I, I wanted to see if I could do it. And the uh, Marines that were deployed over there, they said, this, this, is, this is what I thought it would be. Uh, I thought it would be, you know, challenging. I thought it would be scary. Um, uh, and I learned how to depend on other people. Uh, there was one uh, staff sergeant who, um, one of the incidents in the book, he was a staff sergeant that uh, kept his Marines safe while they were being surrounded by enemy fighters. Um, he said after that was over, and he was appointed as platoon commander, which was a lieutenant's job, um, he was able to do it, but he said he got more appreciation for what the lieutenant had been doing with the platoon, working with 30 to 40 Marines. Uh, and, and right up and down the line, when Marines would uh, someone would get hurt, the next man would, would step up. And that was the training they had. They, they expected that. Um, and, and I tell people now, when I talk to people about the Marines over there, I said they were, they realized that they were probably doing the most important things they were ever going to do in their lives. You know, the rest of their life might not seem as exciting because every day lives depended on their decisions. Uh, lives depended on, 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 on them making the good leadership decisions. Uh, and that was, nobody was just, oh, I'm, I'm a private. I'll just do what they tell me. The private expected that he, he might have to step up and become, uh, take on the role of a corporal or a sergeant, d- depending on the situation. Um, yeah, it's, it's a unique thing. And uh, I have friends that were in the Air Force and friends who were in the Army, and uh, they, they don't seem to have that experience. Uh, you know, they're in the service together, but uh, they don't share as much. And, and on the officer end, uh, every officer in the Marines, uh, after they go through their officer training, uh, they go through, um, once they become a, an officer, they go through six or seven months of what the Marines call the basic school. doesn't matter if the Marine's going to be a pilot or a, a, an Amtrak driver or supply uh, officer. They go through this six or seven months of training before they go to their occupational specialty schools. So every Marine officer has that bond. doesn't matter like me, I went to a, a, a civilian college or the Naval Academy or, uh, you know, a, a state school. Uh, we all have that shared 
that shared training. We all went to the same place. We were all taught the same uh, leadership skills. And because we're the smallest service, I think we're able to do that. Now, we've talked about the things which the Marine Corps has done right. But <laughs> now I'd like to talk about something which you mentioned in your book is some of the difficulties which uh, the Marines have seen in Fallujah, some of them were with logistics, mm-hmm. some of them were because uh, some of the problems was was urban combat, which was they call uh, M-O-U-T, they were not fully understood, not fully appreciated before the war. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us more about these problems, just some of the, based on the experiences of these Marines you've spoken to? Right, well, most of them had several months of training, and it was a variety of training. Part of the training was for what was called st- security and stability operations. Uh, there was the the belief that the, the uh, Marine forces would go in there, uh, help to stabilize things in the various cities, and help to train uh, Iraqi police and Iraqi uh, army units. Um, and they went in with the idea, we're going to go in with uh, soft covers, not helmets. Uh, we'll be walking in the cities. We'll be um, providing money for these various uh, occupations, uh, the reconstruction occupations. Um, but just in case, uh, they did train uh, in a variety of circumstances, dealing with riots, dealing with civilians, dealing with civilians on the road, um, making camps. But you're right, there, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on, on urban combat that it turned into. However, that being said, um, normally, uh, in a peacetime situation, a Marine battalion, which is about 800 Marines, goes through a, an 18-month training cycle where they, they build up the, uh, the, the various elements of the battalion. Uh, they train together. They do different types of training in different places. Uh, there's one big exercise they do in California at a place called 29 Palms, which is a combined arm exercise. So uh, I did this myself many years ago. Uh, get to call in airstrikes, get to call in artillery, uh, get to use all the supporting arms. Uh, that the Marines have live ammunition uh, on this exercise. Um, and then after that 18-month period, then a unit is certified to deploy. And uh, normally they might deploy for seven months on board a ship uh, as part of a readiness group, or they might deploy to uh, um, some conflict area. And then at the end of that period, which now we're talking a two-year period, the battalion goes back home. Um, Marines who are at the end of their service are, are discharged New Marines are brought in, and, and the cycle starts all over again. So um, with that training cycle, uh, before the first invasion of Iraq in 2003, the Marines, most of the units had gone through that 18-month cycle. Uh, the second invasion, or the second occupation, I should say, in 2004, um, a lot of the Marines were experienced uh, in these units, and they knew they didn't have the time to go through the full training cycle to get over there. So. Um, and when the urban combat did start, um, they weren't completely unprepared for it, but it, it was a surprise for the Marines, I think, that they were going to be in, in close combat like that in cities. And and it didn't take them long to adapt because uh, every unit, probably half of the Marines in it, had experienced some type of combat before. And based on what you've seen, based on what you learned about the battle when you were, of course, doing the interviews and later when you worked in your book, do you think that there were things which the Marine Corps learned, which they did do better later on, based on the knowledge, based on the experience which they gained there? Uh, 
Well, when I was there, it looked like the in, in Fallujah, especially um, that within a, a, another week, if the Marines had been allowed to, they would have cleaned out the city. Uh, they would have eliminated the insurgency there. Um, but it was very interesting when the uh, the, the negotiations began with uh, various leaders in, in Fallujah and, and, and civilians in, in Baghdad and the uh, provisional authority that the United States had there, uh, they really wanted to make an effort to uh, have the Iraqis uh, in charge of the peace process in Fallujah. And um, so they, uh, I think Marines were a little bit frustrated that they weren't allowed to finish the job in, in April and May of 2004. But, uh, but to a man, they basically said, let's, let's give this a try. You know, we're not, we're not here to make decisions like this. We're here to do what we're told. <clears throat> the civilian authorities and our command authorities think that this is worth a try. And, um, and they tried it. Um, of course, what happened then in November, uh, the, the insurgency had grown. Things had festered there in Fallujah and Western Iraq. And at that point, the Marines, along with army elements, had to go into Fallujah and basically, um, you know, full scale combat. A lot of a lot of Iraqis were killed. Um, I think over 100 Marines were killed in that operation. Um, had the Marines been allowed to do what they could have done in April, November wouldn't have had to take place. Again, that's the gift of hindsight. At the time, I was there and I talked to these Marines and they all said, yeah, th- this is worth a try. We're going to help with these people where we can. We're going to train them where we can. And and uh, we don't have to destroy the city now. This is April, May of 2004. Um, November, December 2004, uh, they basically had to go in and, and cause a lot of damage in the city to, to get the, to put an end to that insurgency. So I think that was a lesson. It's really no lesson. It was just... They tell us to go in and, and stop the insurgency that we're doing it. They tell us to back off and let the uh, civilian authorities try to come up with a solution. Yes, sir. We'll try to do that. And then in the fall, that didn't work. Uh, let's go in again. And it, there didn't seem to be, from what I read about the fall invasion, the Marines didn't have, uh, didn't second guess themselves. We were told to do this in the spring. We're told to do this in the fall and, and we'll do it. So on the tactical level, on the there, there weren't any updates to the tech, to the training material based on what happened. No changes of this sort. Uh, no, uh, the the Marines the um, they were aware that the insurgents and this is in April and May of two thousand four. The insurgents watched how they operated. Uh, the insurgents would watch how they reacted, how the Marines reacted, and and the Marines adapted to that also. Um, you know, one thing they noticed was uh, that usually between midnight and 5 a.m., there wasn't too much insurgent activity. So that was a good time to go check for uh, improvised explosive devices or to, to do raids on places because um, the insurgents seemed to knock off for, for, for a, a nap time at night. Um, during the day, there wasn't a, a whole lot of activity either because, uh, as I found when I was there, and, and from your part of the world, you know, it gets really hot in the daytime. Um, in Iraq, there were days when it was 125, 130 degrees in the day and pretty much between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Uh, you wouldn't see many people out, but from pre-dawn until about 10 a.m., farmers were working on farms. People were in cities. Uh, in the evening, people would be out again working and doing their job. It just during the daytime, it's just too hot. So that's something the Marines learned to adapt to that uh, there's certain times of day where we need to be more alert. And there's other times of day where not much will happen. And uh, one thing I, I I was looking for it before we, we started this interview, we 
we did have a, a, a cultural cheat sheet. It was a laminated uh, card about 10 inches by six inches. It would fold up and put in a pocket. And um, to make the Marines aware, depending on what part of Iraq they were in, some of the cultural norms that people would follow, um, you know, the difference between Sunni and Shiites, uh, the difference between Kurds and, and other Iraqis, uh, things that you don't do when dealing with an Iraqi, um, things that are considered um, uh, impolite uh, in, in just normal dealings with people. Um, so there was some awareness of that. And uh, the Marines, uh, especially in the early part of April 2004, uh, when they were first fighting, felt constrained by by some of these things until the fighting blew up full full bore, and they were able to unleash um, what they were what they possessed. And from uh, from this, I would just like to drill down a little bit on the last uh, thing you talked about. It's sometimes said uh, some of the veterans, some of the officers which worked in Iraq said that the understanding the U.S. military had of Iraqi culture was a bit superficial at this time, where the people understood that there was a difference between Sunni and Shia, but might not have known about the differences within this, of uh, differences between Tikriti and Baghdadi. Do you think this? Uh, do you think this was this was this was a problem? Uh, you know, I don't look at it as a problem, uh, and I don't think the Marines did. Uh, they learned to to deal with the people in the part of Iraq that they were in, which was mostly Al-Ambar. Uh, they weren't dealing with people in Baghdad. Uh, they weren't pe- dealing with people in Basra. Uh, and, you know, based on things that I've read about experiences of different forces over there, um, Basra is a different world than Fallujah, and Fallujah is a different world than Baghdad. Just the, the mix of people, uh, Baghdad, more urban uh, more sophisticated, uh, Fallujah, a lot less urban and, uh, a lot less trustworthy. Um, and the whole dynamic over there of the, uh, uh, the religious leaders, uh, and, or who call themselves, some of them who call themselves religious leaders. And then also the, the dynamics of the, um, um, the political si- situation with the sheiks and the, and the tribes, uh, that was something I think the Marines early on, uh, learn to work with, began to understand it. Well, that's actually very enlightening, I think, because it, it brings light to some of the discussion which I've read, which I think some of our readers might be familiar, uh, familiar with. They're listeners, but I keep calling them readers because it is the New Books Network. There's always a bit, uh, some discussion in the literature about what the culture of Iraq is like and how there are different groups there and the knowledge of them is not so good. But you're telling me that this was often resolved simply by you're in this province and you need to know the people who live there and that's what you need to know. Yes, that's that's how I felt. That's what I feel. And from this, I am going to transition. I'm going to transition to our final question. Which, you know, as I said, we're creatures of tradition here. We've started with a traditional question. We're going to loop around to one which is also traditional. You know, this is a show by readers, for readers. And so I'd like to ask you, what are the books which you're reading currently? Maybe there are recommendations which you could make. 
the I, I know you asked me that question. Uh, trying to think, I've just finished rereading a book by uh, Bing West. Uh, he's a former Marine officer, Vietnam era, and uh, I actually met him when I was in uh, in uh, Ramadi. Um, his book was uh, oh gee was I can't think of the name of it. Uh, maybe No True Glory. It, it pretty much covers the whole year of 2003, 2004. Uh, that's one that I'm rereading. Um, that would be No True Glory, a frontline account of the battle for Fallujah. That's it. Yes. Yes. Really, really good book. He, he, uh, he must have a staff of people working for him. Uh, I have a staff of me working for me. Uh, but he covers uh, the politics at every level. He covers uh, the, the U.S politics. He covers the uh, dealings with the Iraqi leaders over there. He covers what the Marines were told to do and not and told not to do. Uh, really, really, uh, really well done book. Um, the other book I'm reading has nothing to do with anything here. It's called uh, Close to Shore. It's about the, the first shark attacks off the New Jersey coast in 1914. So <laughs> that's just a summer read. That's uh, that's by Michael Capuzzo. Yes, yes. A true story of terror in an age of innocence. Yes, yes. It was interesting to me because I spent a lot of my summers in, in the, at the Jersey Shore uh, in in the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies. So I, I I knew of a lot of the places that are mentioned there, and uh, it's an interesting book to Americans because the uh, the book Jaws by Peter Benchley was kind of inspired by this these shark attacks back in the 1910s has nothing to do with military. It's just a fun read. Well, that's insightful because I don't know anything about shark attacks other than the <laughs> idea that there are sharks and sometimes they attack. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I know the thing to which everybody knows about shark attacks. Uh-huh. So I, I will try to look into that and, uh, <laughs> Now that we've we are bringing our interview to a conclusion, and I'd I'd like to thank you for being with us today, the Colonel. Well, thank if you, you write, yeah, if you if when you write another book, you're always welcome to return to our show. Oh, great! Have a nice day, sir.